This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm in love with that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Love that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Hello, everybody. This is the I'm in love with that song podcast. I'm your host, Brad Page, and welcome to our first show of 2023. I thought this would be a good opportunity to take a look back 50 years ago to the year 1973 and see what was happening in music and in the broader American cultural landscape 50 years ago. Some of you may remember a while back, I did an episode on the year 1965. That show was inspired by a book written by Andrew Grant Jackson on 1965. Well, Andrew also wrote a book about 1973. It's called 1973 Rock at the Crossroads. And so I thought, if I'm going to do a show about 1973, I should invite Andrew to join me. So here's my conversation with Andrew about the music that made history 50 years ago in 1973. Andrew Grant Jackson, welcome to the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show to, to talk about 1973. You know, we're heading into 2023, so it's the perfect time to look back 50 years ago. You literally wrote the book on 1973. It's called 1973 Rock at the Crossroads. So I couldn't have anyone better on the show, I think, to talk about 50 years ago uh, this year. So let's get right into it. First, why do you think 1973 was such a crucial year in rock history? I like to think of it as the year that rock peaked and then began to die but then was reborn because um, on the one hand, it was the last blockbuster year where all these 60s giants released classics at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then you had these um, veterans who had been kind of toiling on the outskirts for a decade who suddenly shot to the front. And then you had this amazing crop of these new superstars who became, who released their debut album. At the same time, it was the year that uh, radio programmers figured out how to synthesize AM Top 40 with FM Progressive Rock and they created album-oriented rock. And then it began this period where even though there's obviously so much great classic rock, it started pushing anybody out who wasn't, you know, arena rock or yacht rock or disco for a time. And so the seeds were planted there for stagnation. But then underneath the radar, there were all these new movements that started to percolate that would eventually rise up and rejuvenate popular music. So it was just a chaotic, fascinating year on like so many fronts to take a look at. Yeah. So let's, let's start talking about some of these records that came out in 1973. We had the former Beatles, you know, Band on the Run came out and um, the Stones, they did a Goat's Head Soup, which at the time was dismissed or as the beginning of their decline from like the peak. But uh, I think it's it's a very unique 
album in their canon, you know, and I think, I think it's still a great album. Yeah. Goat's Head Soup is one of my favorite Stones records. I think that's a great record and, and a really underappreciated album. Dylan, he did knock on heaven's door that year, and um, Zeppelin did Houses of the Holy, The Who did Quadrophenia, Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On, Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions, James Brown had a bunch of great stuff. Even Elvis, you know, he had his peak in terms of uh, audience with the Aloha from um, Hawaii special. And so, yeah, all those guys were still cranking on all cylinders there. The Who released Quadrophenia, as you mentioned. Pete Townsend has, I think, more than once said that in in his opinion quadrophenia is the last great who album i love a lot of the stuff that came after that but i think it's their peak record in many ways why should i care why should i care Yeah, it was, he was like looking back at the 10 years earlier, like the mod thing. It was like, there was a lot of nostalgia going on that year, you know, like happy days and American graffiti and everything. And he was looking back at their early days and definitely their last ambitious concept album after that thing. Right. Yeah. Quadrophenia was their last real concept piece. After that, you have Who by Numbers and Who Are You, Face Dances, It's Hard, but none of those, they're not a concept or a story or a rock opera or anything like that. But yeah, Quadrophenia just, I mean, that alone <laughs> is, it makes 1973 worthwhile. Um, but yeah, on the soul uh, and R&B front, you've got uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, Stevie Wonder is in his imperial period here where he just can do no wrong. He's putting out classic album after classic album, and this is right in the midst of that.
What did James Brown put out in 1973? Yeah, James Brown had a really interesting year because uh, he got a lot of blowback because he had supported Nixon, you know, the year before in the elections. Right. Because, you know, he always wanted to get closer to power that could make legislative change. But also he had all these radio stations and tax issues going on. So who knows, maybe that was his prime motivation, hoping to get some help with some of his issues. But for a while, people were like... uh, protesting against him but he had um a lot of great stuff like he was doing all these uh soundtracks like uh black caesar and slaughter's big ripoff to pay back he did that one that year And then uh, we had some other artists that really hit their peak at this time. Probably nobody bigger than Pink Floyd with Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, is there any more classic album than Dark Side of the Moon? That came out in 73. Yeah, and then it was on like the charts for like, I forget, like 500 weeks or something like that. The lunatic is on the grass. The lunatic is on the grass Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs Got to keep the lunas on the path You know, a lot of people thought, especially like brain damage on that song, he was writing about Sid Barrett, their former member who became an acid casualty, but... uh, but I get it. he was actually, Roger Waters was writing about him himself. He had some moments himself where he thought he had some flashes of mental illness and it kind of freaked him out. That's probably, if you had to pick of the albums, I guess that would probably be the one that everybody would pick. It's certainly the one that's had the most long-term impact. Right. And then Elton John uh, is kind of in his imperial phase too. Yeah he puts out um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in year that was when reggae really started being embraced by the english guys and a lot of people like the stones and cat stevens went down to jamaica to record and uh, elton john tried it but um they recorded the maybe the first take or the roots of saturday night's all right for fighting but he was they were so freaked out like this the recording studio was kind of guarded you know with <laughs> guns and barbed wire and it had been pretty brutal like a 
unfortunately, the, the women who were in this, the Stones camp had been like assaulted, sexually assaulted there. And so Elton John was kind of like, ah, you know, tried in Jamaica, but then he left and they went back to their favorite place in uh, France. mentioned reggae i mean this is the year of bob marley and the whalers too right yeah he had um two great albums that year and uh catch a fire and burning and uh burning had uh i shot the sheriff and um get up stand up on it get up stand up stand up for your right get up stand up stand up for your right get up You know, it's so interesting, you know, this is just one thing I love about 73 was in that year, he played a bunch of shows at Max's Kansas City, which the, the hippest of the hip clubs and bars in New York. Right. And he was like opening for Springsteen or then Springsteen would open for him. And then uh, Billy Joel was like opening for Waylon Jennings, you know, just like so bizarre how all these titans who were seem so distinct to us now, they were just overlapping with each other, you know, coming up back then. Let's pause here for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
Brooks. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Yeah, well, talking about Springsteen and Billy Joel, they're just a few of the artists that put out their first records in 1973. So let's kind of take a, a look at that list. Springsteen releases uh, Greetings from Asbury Park. And then later the same year, he comes out with The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle. He was really cooking there, too. And that's this is not unique to 1973, but it's an amazing thing that throughout the 60s and the 70s, the rate at which artists were churning out records to a year is not unusual. It's it's the norm. You know, name almost any band in, in the 60s and 70s, and they've come out with at least two records a year. And a lot of these records have gone on to be classics and just amazes me that anyone's lucky to have one classic record in their catalog, you know, and they, these bands are doing, they're coming out with two records a year of brilliance. It's just, it's just amazing to me. And on top of that, they're touring. So that it's not like they have a lot of luxury and time to make these records, but somehow they're able to just produce year after year, great records, multiple records per year. It just amazes me. And now, you know, artists go three, four years between records. Yeah. Queen released their first album in Smith and the New York Dolls and Leonard Skinner, you know, those were along with Springsteen and Billy Joel. That's like six, six of the biggest debuts, you know, in one year. Yeah. I mean, you have a record like the first New York Dolls album, which didn't really sell that much, but incredibly influential record. Like you said, Leonard Skinner puts out their first album. So it's really kind of a, the start of Southern rock in a lot of ways. 
But yeah, the Marshall Tucker band came out that year. And then uh, ZZ Top with LaGrange came out. And the Allman Brothers had a Ramblin' Man that year, too. Yeah, so it was, a, was definitely a high point for, for the Southern rock sound. You've also got some, I think, overlooked records. Like, well, I mentioned the New York Dolls record. It's commercially overlooked. But Lou Reed released Berlin, which is my favorite Lou Reed record. I think it was, was not a successful record in the time, at the time. But, I, you know, in retrospect, I think it's... it's yeah, yeah, it's funny with that album because it has this reputation as being the most depressing album of all time because he had broken up with his wife. But it, that year, he had, had probably his commercial peak because um, Bowie produced his previous album, Transformer, which had Walk on the Wild Side, which that tune got pretty high up on the charts in 73. Talking about Bowie, Bowie had quite a year. He released Aladdin Sane. You know, after you released Ziggy Stardust the previous year, then they toured the U.S. where it was funny. They weren't they didn't really make a big splash, except they started really coming through. And glam was strangely big in in Rust Belt towns like Detroit and uh, Cleveland. So on Aladdin Sane, he has um, Panic in Detroit, which is a great tune, which was inspired by a lot of the stories you heard from like the MC5 and the Stooges. And In the UK, he was like, it was Bowie mania then, but he, at the peak of it, after his run of shows in July, he announced that the Spiders from Mars were breaking up. But they did one last covers album. He's, he did another, like, we're talking about artists do like two albums a year. He did a pinups, which was like a collection of his favorite cover songs and stuff. Wednesday just don't go
1973 was a big year for women in rock. And uh, I'm talking about rock, not not pop. Fanny was a rock band, a full-on great rock and roll band that just never got their due. Susie Quattro uh, was making records. Linda Ronstadt was breaking through. So you had some pretty significant female artists working uh, in 1973 and releasing important records then as well. And in one of my favorite albums of that year, Joni Mitchell recorded Court and Spark all through 73, but it didn't come on until like January 1 of 74. But it, I mean, it was like a amazing year for just women's rights you know you had Roe versus Wade then and uh, yep yep just interesting here we are 50 years later and that's never been as as hot a topic since then as it is today yeah you had bands like Grand Funk Railroad which are kind of a I don't know that I wouldn't say they're forgotten but they released were an American band which was their biggest record they were a huge band in the early 70s which Rundgren, Todd Rundgren produced that one. Right. That's, yeah, that's another record that uh, Todd worked on. They were, they were kind of a band like that Detroit, you know, had all these guys like the MC5 that were just a little too raw and punk. Right. Or proto-punk. But they were the ones that kind of, uh, I mean, they were, they were legitimate. They were real just guys from Flint, Michigan. They weren't phony or whatever, but they just, for some reason, were a little uh, less you know, edgy and um, right. were able to play Shea Stadium, you know? Cause they right. Just, they were selling Beatles level tickets. Um, they were, they were huge. I don't think people forget how big Grand Funk Railroad was at the time. a little bit about the change in radio which you mentioned up top um, but that really is an important aspect of what was going on in the 70s and really changed changed the whole business the way music was marketed and everything became becomes much more siloed by the end of the decade yeah you know there was um at the time there was am top 40 you know, which was very, uh, it was actually very eclectic. It was, uh, they would play everybody from like, you know, Beatles to Motown to like Frank Sinatra and tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And, but then, and then you had a progressive FM 
where the DJs would play these 20 minute tracks, whatever they want. And, but um, a lot of the uh, songs that would seem too long to be singles started compelling people to uh, buy albums and the albums, you know, like Stairway to Heaven, you know, Won't Get Fooled Again. And these people started thinking about, well, why don't we um, combine playing the long, hard rock stuff that's popular, but with formatted things where we tell the DJ what to play. And so, because there was a guy named uh, Ron Jacobs, who was like a program director in, I think, Southern California, who they started sending people to like supermarkets to do this demographic research on like, what albums did the young white kids want to hear? Because the advertisers wanted the young white kids because I guess they blew the most money or whatever. Right. So they really started um, trying to format everything to match that demographic. And there was a guy named Mike Harrison who started writing this column called Album Oriented Rock in this radio and records trade magazine. And so it really started coalescing into these tight playlists that the disc jockeys were told what to do instead of having freedom to do whatever. But that format was very profitable and it kind of took off. But it, what was interesting was like in 73, they had 27 number one hits on you know Billboard and 10 of them were by black artists. But by the end of the decade, the first years of the 80s, they'd only had like two by black artists, you know, like or three. Like one year it was just Lionel Richie and Ebony and Ivory, you know, like so it really... Um, Anybody who didn't fit those demographics that the advertisers wanted to sell to the young white kids just kind of got closed out you know, by the end of the decade. Yeah, that just got less and less and less as time went on and things became way more formatted and segregated and you just didn't, you didn't mix. And so the Motown stuff just didn't get played next to the rock acts anymore, which I think ultimately was just detrimental to the music in general. Yeah. One thing that's really started picking up steam in 73 was disco. Right. But, um, you know, in, in Manhattan, a lot of the clubs that would become the famous discos opened. And then uh, a lot of the singles that would become huge the following year, like The Sound of Philadelphia and Rock the Boat and Rock Your Baby and Love's Theme, those all were released this year. For a while, disco was um, very, you know, much from the street and, you know, just uh, responding to what the people loved in the clubs and where all the races were mixing and sexualities and all that. But then when it became huge, then that, then that got like formatted by the end of the decade, you know, until it, they killed it through. <laughs> just they, they wrote it to the ground, you know. At the same time as you have disco making its first big moves, you also had the the early seeds of of punk. We already talked about New York Dolls, but you know a lot of that started around the same time too. The first first seeds of what would become punk, and you talk about that in the book. Yeah, there's there are a lot of interesting things with punk, but you know just the New York Dolls aspect of it. The, the thing I love is that um, in New York there were. At that time, you had to play covers. You had to be a cover band or else there was only a couple of places to play, like Max's, Kansas City, and then CBGB's opened up at the end of 73. And there was this place in Queens called Coventry, which what I just love is that um, the, the New York Dolls were playing there. 
And the guys watching them were the guys from the Ramones and the guys from Kiss. Right. So it was interesting that two kind of paths of the New York Dolls like uh, kind of birthed. I mean, you know, what was interesting about punk too that I, I loved punk and heavy metal, like those concepts that we um, now that we look at music through were both really uh, kind of pounded home through these rock journalists because um, journalists like Dave Marsh and Lester Bangs have been talking about punk in reference to these, like these guys from the sixties, like the seeds that maybe had one classic garage band hit and then kind of never really broke through. And then Lenny Kay, who became um, Patti Smith's guitarist, was commissioned by Electro Records to do a compilation of all those kind of classic songs. Yeah, the Nuggets compilation album, which we've actually featured on this show recently. One of my favorite records. But yeah, I love that early proto-punk garage rock psychedelic stuff. It's it's just, it's great. Yeah, it's really interesting that like Lester Banks in particular was really using the term punk like all the time. Like he Like he had so many citations of that word in like... 72, 73, 74. And then with heavy metal, um, there was a journalist called Mike Saunders who kind of seemed like he was noticing that Lester Bangs was really pounding this term punk into everybody's head. And so he started like pounding this term heavy metal, which William Burroughs used it in some, one of his books. And then like it was in uh, Born to be Wild song, you know, by Steppenwolf. But he just started referring to like Sabbath and Zeppelin and everybody like heavy metal. So it's kind of like these journalists kind of... Uh, interesting seeing them form that year because they would include bands that you wouldn't think of any of those genres when they were using them you know those days but uh right gradually those concepts started taking hold yeah when these guys first talk about it it's fairly loose and you could describe uh black sabbath and grand funk railroad as as heavy metal right but of course then that gets sort of corporatized and, and then gets sliced even further to the point where you've got death metal and black metal and hair metal. And, um, and we slice the pie thinner and thinner, which is a pet peeve of mine. I, I hate it when we do that. Cause I think it's, it's limiting. Yeah, it's weird because on the one hand, you know, when you're a kid in the record store, some of those labels are helpful because you go to the heavy metal section or the punk section, you know, and then when you tune into radio stations, you know, is this a heavy metal radio station or whatever, but, it just calcifies, I guess. And like you say, it starts segregating and getting too dogmatic or something. Right, right. Some of the other cultural things or things going on in the culture outside of the music, but of course affecting the music, you've got the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah, Vietnam ended. The last Vietnam soldier came home on, uh, or left Vietnam on March 29. And there's that famous picture of uh, the burst of joy photo or that, that a uh, lieutenant is coming home and his little kids are running toward him on the runway. And um, there was, it's funny, there were a lot of uh, kind of deep cuts going on that were still referencing Vietnam, like uh, Search and Destroy in the Stooges album. I must keep walking cheetah with a hat full of napalm. I'm a runaway son of the nuclear aid bomb. I am a world's forgotten boy. The one who searches and destroys Honey, gotta help me, please Somebody gotta save my soul Baby, that's for me The New York Dolls had the song Vietnamese Baby and Funkadelic had this tune, March to the Witch's Castle, about 
soldiers coming home and becoming junkies. February 12, 1973. The prayers of thousands were answered. The war was over and the first of the prisoners returned. Needless to say, it was the happiest day in up to 13 years for most. Others, the real nightmare had just begun. The nightmare of readjustment. And for those, we were afraid. Back to the world, Curtis Mayfield had it. So there was, there was a lot of uh, reflection of Vietnam going on in the culture. And then before Nixon could really uh, benefit from that, I guess... Watergate really took off that year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another big political event. I'm not aware of that many (laughs) songs about Watergate, but I think it just sort of put the exclamation point at the end of a lot of people's feelings about politics and the government and whatnot. And, and, you know, it's funny, too, that that year... Speaking of like having hearings and all that stuff, you know, tying it in today with the hearings about uh, January 6th and Trump and all that. That year was like a formative year for Trump because the Department of Justice brought a suit against him and his father, Fred Trump, because they were one of the biggest developers and landlords in New York. And they were not letting um, African-Americans be in their apartments. And so they, you know, the Department of Justice brought this huge suit against them, which landed on the front page of the New York Times and was kind of like a bellwether case. And um, Donald Trump actually went out and he found uh, Roy Cohn, who was McCarthy's uh, right-hand man. You know, Cohn gave him a lot of his techniques that Trump would perfect, like, you know, never admit anything, just double down. If someone attacks you, attack them back. And, uh, you know, they never um, admitted to their, the racism or discrimination, but um, they eventually settled, but they never admitted to it or whatever. <laughs> We'll be right back after this. The gay liberation movement kind of starts around this time, too. Well, you had both the political events and then you had um, the musical events that kind of encouraged people, you know, fighting for gay rights. But that year, in December, the American Psychiatric Association finally voted to remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, you know, which today it sounds absurd, but, and then uh, Lance Loud was kind of the first out personality on the, uh, it was like the first reality show. Right. The Loud Family. I forget the name of the show. The American Family. That's right. American Family. And then Rocky Horror started performing in London that year. So it was a, it was definitely a great year for all those elements. And then, you know, um, glam rock in general was peaking with, uh, you had Sweet with um, Ballroom Blitz. And T-Rex was really, uh, you know, you had 20th Century Boy going and uh, Roxy Music. That was a big year for Roxy Music because uh, Eno left the band that year. There's a new sensation. A fabulous creation. A danceable solution. Do the 
an interesting thing that was going on in the wider political or economic conditions that directly affected the music business was the oil crisis, because, of course, it takes oil to make plastics to press records. And that had a big impact. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it kind of it really, the vinyl shortage really, I think, kicked off in 74 because OPEC happened. I mean, the uh, oil embargo happened in 73, but um, really took hold. And I guess the albums became a lot thinner and breakable more and it put, put the... Uh, put the industry into a recession in 74. I remember specifically, I think it was RCA records, but I remember there was one of the record labels came up with a new name for their records, like, like flexi something. And you'd take the records out of the sleeve and they would practically flop over. They were so thin and they were so prone to getting warped to becoming warped because they just, you know, they were pressing them as thin as they could possibly press them to save money. Um, but it produced a lot of pretty poor records. And, you know, like the other big influence on with the oil crisis was it kind of sparked the moment that uh, income inequality started to expand again, because since World War II, middle-class workers and the corporate managers and CEOs, they're their incomes were coming closer together. They I think they called it the Great Compression. And middle class workers had this kind of stunning rise in their standard of living. But then 73 was the year that um when you compare average hourly earnings, when you uh factor in inflation, it, it peaked that year and it started going down. And so the that was really a, a pivotal year where we for middle class people we kind of started going backwards a little bit. And you know there's there's another movement we didn't really um, touch on too much yet, but um, country really uh, had a lot of interesting effects in kind of these three movements where they you had like the outlaw country movement, then you had country rock, and then you had southern rock. I guess we touched on them a little bit, but... Well, yeah, we didn't really talk about country, but it's kind of the center of country music was always held pretty tight in Nashville. But this is where you start to see what they call the Bakersville sound, right? Coming out of California and Southern rock, country rock. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about some of that. Well, it's interesting. I don't know how much Willie Nelson and um, Waylon Jennings, who were like the, the main like outlaw country guys, you know, Chris Christopherson. But Christopherson was kind of in this his own world where he was... Uh, partly influenced by Dylan and he was working in Nashville and country, but he kind of went to his own rules and had a, you know, a lot of rock influence and Willie Nelson and uh, Waylon like that, they really started putting up a fight to do things their way and just have their, their touring bands play on their actual albums and then produce it how they wanted and write what they wanted. And um, they really finally broke through and took control and they started releasing like the outlaw country classic albums. Willie sits around in his underwear Biting on a bullet Pulling out all of his hair A shotgun Willie's got all of his family there Well you can't make a record If you ain't got nothing to say You can't make a record If you ain't got nothing to say Play music if you don't know nothing to play. 
in country rock, which is you're talking about the Western Bakersfield thing. You know, you had, you had the folk music guys in L.A. who were very influenced by the Bakersfield sound. And so you had like the Eagles. And it, it was funny. They, too, had their own um, struggles because uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley, um, they started writing stuff that was mellow, like uh, Tequila Sunrise and Desperado that year. But um, Glenn Fry had come from Detroit where he had been sort of in Bob Seger's scene and he wanted to bring more of his rock stuff to it. But um, ironically, their uh, producer, uh, Glenn Johns, produced them. And he, of course, was like the rock producer extraordinaire of like The Who and Zeppelin and The Beatles. But he told them, you guys can't rock. You know, trust me, I've been with Zeppelin and The Who. You guys can't rock. And he was trying to keep them in that mellow zone. So they finally broke with him. And, and even Linda Ronstadt, you know, she, um, you know, she was very close with the Eagles. And she actually, Neil Young brought her on tour with him to open for him. And it was kind of a baptism of fire for her because all these like kind of rock guys would like throw stuff at her, but she would just had to like yell back at him. And, you know, she wanted to be about a bit more rocky too, but um, they kept trying to pigeonhole him. It's always these, these uh, label people who are very concerned with pigeonholing people into the demographic they think can sell. And so they, they get uptight about them trying to go outside their lines and stuff. <laughs> There was also the continued rise of the singer-songwriter movement, uh, acts coming out of Laurel Canyon and whatnot, right? And uh, kind of centered down the road from Laurel Canyon on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard at the Troubadour Club. There were like so many uh, people like working there that year that were great. You know, you had Tom Waits, who kind of positioned himself as like the anti-smooth, um, uh, slick country rock troubadour person. And Billy Joel, I don't know if it was his debut album, but the Piano Man album, it was about his whole trek because he used to be in a two-man band with another guy, but then he fell in love with the guy's wife and then she went with Billy and became his wife for most of the 70s. And he did this album, Piano Man, which was almost, wouldn't call it a concept album, but it has so many great forgotten Billy Joel songs. And it's about his trip across the West to Los Angeles where then he was playing the troubadour and the piano bar there and... Jim Croce was one of my favorites. He had like, I think two albums that year. And Bad, Bad Leroy Brown was like the second biggest hit of the year. And then he had, of course, the plane crash on September 20th. And, uh, you know, Bob Seger was, he did all these great albums that didn't never really broke through until he had Night Moves a couple of years later. Zeppelin just had a, a big year with Houses of the Holy. Yep. It didn't have like the monumental anthem, like Stairway to Heaven on it. So, you know, sometimes people don't put it up there with Zeppelin's greatest stuff. But um, No, but it's got Rain Song, which is an amazing piece of music. Um, it's got No Quarter, which is one of their best songs. Um, 
Song Remains the Same, which is a Zeppelin classic. I mean, it's, it's a weird-sounding record. The production on that has always seemed weird to me. But, um, yeah, it's a Stone Cold classic, no doubt. The other great thing that was amazing, this is another thing where you can argue that it was 73, but Neil Young recorded um, Tonight's the Night, even though it wasn't released for a couple of years later. And that was pretty much done live in the studio, super raw. It's considered one of his best albums. Yeah, it's and it, it is raw, both recording-wise and just emotionally. It's very raw. Yeah, two of his, uh, I think, like a band member from Crazy Horse and a roadie had both OD'd. Yeah, right. Both victims of uh, drug addiction and overdose. Yeah, yeah, recorded in 73, didn't come out till 74, but I'll allow it. Tonight, 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 tonight. Bruce Berry was a working man. He used to load that Econoline. Well, late at night when the people were gone, he used to pick up my guitar and sing a song in a shaky voice that was real as the day was long. Tonight's the night, yes it is. Tonight's the night. We talked about the beginnings of disco, the beginnings of punk. Another thing that was gestating at this time was the earliest sounds of hip-hop. Right. Yeah, there was a guy in um, the Bronx, this DJ Cool Herc. He made his debut in August as a DJ at a party that was in the rec room of uh, the apartment he lived at in the Bronx on Sedgwick Avenue. His family was from Jamaica. And in uh, Jamaica, they had um, this tradition where, um, you know, the DJs would get these big trucks and these big sound systems and they would uh, blast the music out. And like, you know, thousands of people would pay to come uh, listen to the, uh, the DJs play. And uh, they would start doing their own uh, toasting, they called it, on top of them, where they would do their little raps and uh, over the instrumental versions. And so, uh, you know, all that was kind of in the back of uh, DJ Cool Herc's mind. And they started his first show at his sister's play or at his sister's party in the apartment. But then I think it was the following year that he started doing block parties where they would plug in uh, stuff into the lampposts and the, in the parks and they would start playing and they would, you know, they would start uh, using a lot of the instrumental um, disco tracks and the funk tracks that were big in this year. And they would uh, focus in on the beats 
And eventually that was the genre that would take over from rock as the best-selling genre. I mean, it's still strong in the indie level, but on a cultural mega level, it's definitely receded. For better or worse, you know, rock does not have the stature, I guess, or the commercial appeal that it did back when we were youngsters. Um, But, you know, if, if I was to put the best spin on it, I would say that's really where rock is best when it's got some rebellion to it, um, when it's on the outside looking in rather than being the in thing, at least for the, for the integrity of the music, for whatever that's worth. But no, you don't get hit rock records today. The day of rock topping the charts is over, but I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing for the music. You know, I, I, I did a book on the year 1965. I read that book, and that inspired me to do an episode of my show on 1965. So that and your book was a source material for that. So, of course, when it came time to do 1973, you were the go-to guy. Um, that book is great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But um, And then my publishers actually came to me with the idea for 73, and when I looked at 73, I was kind of uh, stunned with just the quality of so much music, just like how how it explodes out in every direction. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a very amorphous year, but I think that's what makes it fascinating because it's almost hard to wrap your brain around that year. It's just such a crazy year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any year that brought you Dark Side of the Moon, Houses of the Holy, Quadrophenia, uh, Let's Get It On, Band on the Run. Uh, that that saw the first elements of punk and disco and hip-hop and uh, reggae. It's absolutely a significant year uh, for rock, for and more than just rock. And you even have a techno, like Kraftwerk was it right. this year, like they ditched the live drums and they just started focusing on like drum machines and so. Right, yeah. That, that's even starting up this year. Yeah, incredible. It's crazy. Yeah, well... Andrew Grant Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I love the 1965 book. I love uh, 1973, Rock at the Crossroads. I highly recommend both of those books to anyone listening to the show. Check them out. Um, They're fascinating reads. And I thank you for coming on the show and doing this with me. Thank you so much, Andrew. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening to my conversation with Andrew Grant Jackson. And there's even more music from 1973 that we didn't touch on. If you'd like to dig deeper into 1973, a great place to start is Andrew's Facebook page for the book. It's at facebook.com slash 1973book. There's even a link there to a playlist of songs from 1973 that you can listen to. And, of course, there's the book itself, which I highly recommend. It's called 1973 Rock at the Crossroads. And Andrew is also the author of the fantastic book on 1965. That book is called 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music, as well as a few other books. I'll put some links in the show notes for all of his books. I will be back in about two weeks with another new episode. You can catch up on all of our previous shows on our website, lovethatsongpodcast.com. Please leave a review or send us feedback. And if you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do 
is to tell a friend about us because your personal recommendations are worth more than any advertising. I'll meet you back here next time on the I'm in love with that song podcast. 